This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Can crisis tip us into an ecologically sane civilization? UK think tank report author Lori Leyburn on a future where disasters ripple across the world. Then let's get away to Antarctica. Why did sea ice crash around that frozen continent? And increasing El Nino events may drive global sea levels higher? Australian scientist Adrian Purek shares big changes at the South Pole. Welcome. This is Radio EcoShock. Two things I find most annoying in climate speak, talking about 1.5 degrees C of warming, as though that is still possible, and assuming humans will build back better no matter how many times disasters strike. A new UK think tank report tackles both. They find a looming risk of falling into, quote, a climate doom loop. The researchers come from two well-known quarters, the Institute for Public Policy Research and Chatham House, both in the UK. They question whether the grand transformation of energy and consumption, well, everything, can actually happen in a warming world. Stalling could mean we fail, becoming ruled by a continuing stream of disasters. One of the thought leaders in this process is Laurie Leyburn. Laurie is a visiting fellow at both think tanks, as well as the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter. He appears often in European publications, TV and radio. Laurie Leyburn, a warm welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, let's start with a factoid. Loretta Heber-Giraday at the United Nations Office of Disaster Risk Reduction was presenting in a panel you moderated last June. It was part of London Climate Action Week. Loretta said by 2030, global disasters could increase by 40%. This amounts to 540 disasters every year, more than 1.5 a day. It's more than any of us can absorb or the news can report, and just seven years away, according to the UN. Laurie Laburn, what do you think it would be like living in such a disastrous time coming right up? It would be very distracting in an immensely tragic way. The resources of states, of communities, of companies would be increasingly absorbed by having to go into crisis management mode and respond to those types of conditions. Uh, it wouldn't be a world that has become critically fractured in the sense of there have been irreversible and catastrophic changes to the environment. Those changes are looming on the horizon, though. It's a world, basically, that looks like what we have seen recently, but much worse. It's a world, therefore, in which we will have to have very robust abilities focused on not being overwhelmed by those symptoms, by those disasters, and staying focused on the root cause, on getting carbon emissions down and restoring nature. How do you define the word disaster? I think there are a wide range of things that we could call disasters in the context of the climate and ecological crisis. In a direct sense, we can think of the storms or heat shocks that we have seen in recent decades and that the scientific community has told us have increased markedly as a result of the climate and ecological crisis. But we also need to expand our definitions to more indirect effects. By that I mean the storms or heat extremes and so on, then leading to impacts on the food system, like a reduction in crops, uh, which then lead to an increase in price, which then leads to the knock-on impact of affecting the ability of people to afford food and the cost of living increasing, which then can have knock-on impacts into, say, political stability to social cohesion to poverty development outcomes. And it's those types of scathing impacts that we need to start to put at the forefront of our understanding of what we mean by climate shocks or climate disasters, what we mean by the consequences of this climate and ecological crisis. Well, as I said at the beginning, many scientists and activists sniff at 1.5 degrees C of warming as an illusion, a goal in the rearview mirror. But your group found danger lurking in the idea of giving up that low goal. How so? Well, we think the 1.5 goal has been a good motivator in many ways to date. Uh, it's provided a focus to climate action, a tangible goal, a number, which I think has helped focus minds. Before, that number was ill-defined. 
and then was two degrees, which we know is even more dangerous and risky and deadly than even one point than one point five. Um, as we head into the future, as we get closer to one point five, and people begin to cast doubt on whether one point five is possible, uh, we will have to seek similar motivators. At the end of the day, what we need is to deliver the huge transformations that you alluded to in your introduction, the changes to our financial systems, systems, transport systems, and so on. And that, at the end of the day, is what we need. Ideally, it would have happened, and we would have limited to 1.1, 1.2, like we are now. Uh, ideally, it would have happened, uh, or it would be in train, so that we've got a likelihood of, of limiting to 1.5. It's not 1.5. It's got to be whatever smallest increment degree to. The question is then, what kind of stories are best to motivate those transformational changes? That's what we're interested in. The UN also said at the same time disasters are increasing because of climate change, vulnerability is also increasing. Could you talk about that? So a quick definition. When we talk about the risks from the climate ecological crisis, we think in terms of your the hazards, so that the, those storms, waves, or the knock-on impacts like I was talking about with the food system, and then people's exposure to them and their vulnerability. Countries, for example, that rely on food imports a lot, they spend a lot, say, of their national wealth and, and on bringing that food into the country. They are particularly exposed and maybe vulnerable to shockwaves that filter through the food system. And ways that you can improve or, or reduce your vulnerability is, for example, to have a food system that might be more more local or a food system globally that's more equitable, uh, that doesn't lead to so much wastage. It doesn't mean that those who uh, have more wealth and power in the global economy can sometimes hoard or divert food stocks. So those are the kind of things that we could use to reduce vulnerability to some of these shocks. Surprisingly, Loretta Heber-Giriday from the UN also warned, quote, where we are seeing the greatest impact is through these high-frequency, low-intensity, but very, very regular events at the community and the local level. So it's not just the big disasters that make the news that count, but repeated changes around us? Exactly. It's, it's, death by a million cuts is a unattractive phrase, but this is essentially what is happening, that chronic shifts in rainfall patterns in temperature and so on are the types of shifting baseline that could be really deadly for crop suitability or for certain ecosystems which lead to then less abundant animals of insects and so on which will then have knock-on impact say for food and more you know extreme persistent changes in certain weather so basically it's that grinding change into less habitable conditions that we're beginning to see all over the world and as you say often media coverage of the climate ecological crisis fixates on the big storm the city leveling impact whereas actually it is the day-to-day shift away from a habitable accommodative environment that is the one of the main features of how the climate ecological crisis is making a less stable a more deadly world. Well, I'd like to take an example from nature. Experts tell us fires are part of the forest ecology in Western North America. The trees have evolved to recover. They have strategies. But Canadian fire expert Michael Flanagan told us on radio two cases there are where forests do not return. The first is a fire so hot that the soil is sterilized. And the second is when wildfires return to the same place within five years, killing off young trees before they seed. Could human civilization be the same, rebuilding after one disaster, but unable to continue after repeated hits? I think one of the features of recent times, the last few decades, has been the improvement in disaster monitoring, anticipation, and then preemption. We are seeing far far fewer fatalities in regions that are being impacted, say, by more extreme hurricanes or, or other types of storms. And that's a very welcome development into the future. If we do not get on top of the temperature rise globally, it does start to stretch 
credibility that we would be able to continue that ability to preempt the severe and deadly impacts of, of certain disasters and impacts. Um, basically, our ability to adapt or to be resilient is in some ways and definitely could be outpaced by the acceleration of escalating climate and ecological impacts. And really, we are now in a situation where we need to consider the resilience of societies in the round. We should be doing that off the back of global shocks like the COVID-19 pandemic. We definitely need that in anticipation of an era in which we'll experience far more instability and we need to make sure that we don't get overwhelmed by that instability because at the end of the day, we have to deal with its root causes or else we are stuck in that vicious circle. Extreme events not seen before can also damage people's sense of immunity. A whole generation no longer trusts their environment, their city or their homes. They don't feel safe. Some will have post-traumatic stress disorder. Even developed countries haven't developed treatment for a whole population that gets traumatized. As we break the climate, is anyone looking into a kind of mass trauma care? There's a established area of study and practice on so-called climate anxiety. It has other names as well. That has largely grown out of observing high, even acute levels of anxiety in children who are essentially anticipating a much harder future uh, that they will be by dint of their long lives relative to older generations they will be disproportionately exposed to and in general we need to expand our understanding of resilience or in the climate jargon adaptation to respect those types of emotional psychological mental health impacts that we will we are experiencing and the world will experience more severely into the future as with all of this there are places that have been in a acutely destabilized state now for a very long time, those that we often describe as being on the climate front line, and they have uh, rich lessons around, well, warnings of some of the what these impacts could look like as we head towards more of a global scale of similar destabilization and what we can do about it. But at the end of the day, governments in particular need to understand that resilience isn't just about building flood barriers or cities that can handle extreme heat. It's about ensuring societies overall are robust to being in this new climate that is being made so that they can, as I said, not become distracted and overwhelmed by it to the detriment of dealing with its root causes. What did your research find about cascading effects of climate-driven disasters? How do the impacts spread out over space and time? Let's use an example that was in the news a couple of years back. The so-called heat dome that impacted North America in, I think, the summer of 2021 got a lot of coverage, at least in Western media. The main focus of that coverage was the near-total destruction of Lytton, the village of Canada, uh, which was almost completely destroyed by wildfires caused by the heat effects, extreme heat. What got less coverage was how the destruction of the local ecology of trees and other plants meant that those roots were not really holding the land in place. So when later in the winter extreme rainfall came, probably maybe driven by the climate crisis itself, it then washed away some of that land which damaged railways and roads which then had a knock-on impact for Canada's trade, which was already suffering from the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic and that the impacts of that on international trade, which then would have rippled out, the effects of Canada's trade being disrupted would have rippled out into the wider trade system globally and interacted with other countries that are experiencing their own problems. That is a good example of that type of cascade dynamic and a good example of how our attention is often on the first step of that cascade and less so on the ripple effect. And it's a ripple effect that is already deadly and will become more dangerous as we head into a climate destabilized future. 
I lived through that heat dome and we were hiding out in the basement trying to stay cool with air cleaners running to get the wildfire smoke out of the air. You told the BBC we are spending too much time mopping the floor to deal with the leak. What did you mean? We are already having to face so many climate shocks and destabilizing impacts that are linked to the worsening climate and ecological crisis. And that may distract us, may be distracting us from reducing emissions, from pushing the changes in societies that will reduce emissions, that will restore nature. An example of this dynamic is if you look back just over a year ago to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the weekend that that happened and he was making veiled nuclear threats, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released one of its latest reports with some very strident warnings. And, of course, the media coverage was fixated on that invasion by Russia at the detriment of the coverage of this deeper long-term problem. Into the future, you could imagine a situation in which the world has become more conflicted, partly because of pressures on food, on water availability, on other key measures of stability. And the news coverage, the political attention, the resources will be focused on dealing with the immediate effects of that instability, on having to respond to potential instances of conflict and so on, at the cost of everyone cooperating globally to get emissions down at the pace and scale that we need to do to avoid the most catastrophic climate and ecological impacts over this century. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Laurie Leyburn from Chatham House and the Institute for Public Policy Research, the UK progressive think tank. We're talking about falling into the climate doom loop and how to avoid that. In recent years, many countries worst hit by big disasters were least able to afford to do much about them. Pakistan endured major floods, but the country's finances are on life support from the World Bank. We recently heard about extreme heat and drought hitting crops in Argentina, another nation close to bankruptcy. Will failure to recover affect the world economy and people in developed nations? I would say in some ways that might have already happened. We are linked, all of us, by interconnected financial, economic, social, political systems. COVID was a tragic and rude proof of that that a health emergency in one place very quickly became not just a health emergency, but also a economic and political and social emergency all over the place. Pakistan, the Pakistan government at the at last year's UN climate conference had a strap line that it had on uh, one of its stalls in the exhibition space that said, what happens in Pakistan does not stay in Pakistan. The knock-on impacts economically in the financial system, say, from the, I would say, world historic flooding that Pakistan experienced will have had some impact in the same way that the extreme heat and drought that hit India earlier in 2022 disrupted its ability to follow through on its promises to make up for the shortfall in food production that had occurred as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is a major part of the global food system. It's really important for us, particularly in Western countries, to understand that the climate and ecological crisis isn't something that happens over there or can be isolated over there, and by that I mean in countries across the global south. It is something that impacts us all in the same way that the failure to provide vaccines to countries across the globe south in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic increased the chance of spread and therefore mutation that could blow back on uh, wealthy nations. The same dynamic exists with the climate and ecological crisis. We are as strong as our weakest member in a globalised interconnected economy. If you allow certain places to fall into strife and destabilisation, everyone will suffer the consequences. And the ultimate endpoint of that dynamic is the 
globally, we are not able to reduce emissions down to the point where we stop this spiral. And as you say, it's not as though climate disasters arrive in an otherwise normal world. The UK recently countered another 138,000 new COVID-19 infections in a single day. The American Center for Disease Control just admitted about one in five people who had been infected with COVID have lasting effects. Millions have long COVID. I just worry that this will weaken our ability to transform anything away from the fossil-powered economy. That's the concern, that in a world beset by multiple interrelating problems, pandemics meet climate shocks of the food system, meet record mistrust in politics, partly driven by digital technology, in that kind of swirling vortex of problems and distractions that are exacerbating each other, yeah, the concern is that that is just simply too overwhelming. But, but, crucially, in moments of instability and flux, we can drive rapid positive change. That is something that we see persistently throughout history. And in some ways, it may have been the case that, well, it didn't have to be the case that it got this bad before stuff really started to change, but that has to be the case now. Crises cannot be let to go to waste in the sense that the, the old definition of crisis, that it is a turning point. And in 2007, 2008, off the back of the financial crisis that happened there, we didn't get a so-called green recovery. With COVID, it's been a bit more ambiguous. I look to the US and its Inflation Reduction Act, as well as its other big spending bits of legislation recently, as an example of how governments can rally to recognise that in the context of instability and a crisis, you can start to push the development of your economy in a better direction, a better direction in the long term because it handles the climate threat and in the shorter term because it can insulate you against volatile energy prices and improve the quality of people's homes and so on. So the crucial thing is that it's about how we respond to those shock moments. We're not in this situation yet where they are becoming so overwhelmingly distracting and resource-intensive that we just don't have any choice but to constantly respond to the last thing. We still are on the front foot. We still enjoy that agency to shift in different directions in the context of instability. There are a number of institutions devoted to assessing risk. Some are financial institutions, and they don't publish their results. Your panel last year included a group new to me, the Global Commission on Governing Risks from Climate Overshoot. What is your assessment of the international work so far on these issues? That the risks are conceived too much in terms of quantitative projections. I'll give you an example of this. That There's a lot of work out there that says, for example, by the year 2100, uh, under the highest emissions trajectory, the trajectory where we just don't even really get the emissions down at all, that heat will be so extreme that there will be a, a loss of labor productivity in, say, of the order of 20%. And that is spurious precision because I'm really not credible to be able to get that kind of a level of precision of how much labor productivity would be reduced in that kind of world. But it's also potentially misleading because in a world in which we've not got emissions down, labor productivity in parts of the world, all over the world, won't just be impacted directly by hotter temperatures, but indirectly through all sorts of other cascading problems like food prices and and political instability and conflicts and so on. So one issue with a lot of this work is it's too, it, it needs to focus much more on a mix of modeling and quantitative measures with more storytelling and, and qualitative assessments, kind of pictures of what that work would look like, scenario planning, for example. And secondly, when we consider a world in which we may go above 1.5 degrees, we have to understand that it's not just a case of pulling some technological levers of one lever that sucks down carbon from the atmosphere here and another one that might reflect some of the sun's rays back into space, so-called geoengineering. Both of those things are risky and in many ways unproven, definitely the scale that we would need. Instead, we have to focus on the things that we should always have been doing, which is reducing emissions through 
demand management, so wasting far less, improving insulation and so on, the kind of measures that will also help us create a more secure society. And by making sure that we are ensuring societies are more resilient. And those things are complementary. Uh, a society with better insulated homes, with more local involvement in, say, the food system and so on, will be ones that are lower carbon and ones that are more resilient. Laurie, are well-known environment groups taking in your message? Can civil activism help us? Yes, I, I think that in some ways activism, particularly direct action activism, has actually internalized these types of messages. In fact, I've personally learned a lot from the messages that they have been using over the last few years. Uh, let's take Extinction Rebellion, which had a huge impact, not just in the UK, but globally with its uh, occupation of London in April 2019. Its message of tell the truth is a useful one because that has to be an element of the resilience of societies going forward. A story that I sometimes use in the context of the UK is that the government, politicians, people like Churchill in the context of the Second World War, they didn't completely sugarcoat the situation that the country was facing. There were things that were covered up or reframed, of course, but there was still a clear statement that it was an existential threat to the country in, in the Second World War. And what that enabled was a connection between society, its lived experience, and what needed to be done so that then that could be done. And it helped form part of a story that gave the country resilience as it had to go through that incredibly trying existential uh, battle. And th the focus of much of activism recently on that truth, for me, is an important part of how we build the type of resolve and resilience of that resolve into the future. Your new paper with Henry Thropp and Susanna Sherman of Chatham House is titled 1.5 Degrees, Dead or Alive. What led to this report and is more follow-up planned? We did the report because we wanted to explore this doom dynamic uh, to make this warning that societies could be so bound up by handling the symptoms of the climate crisis that they are derailed from dealing with the root causes and that that creates that vicious circle. And we wanted to use the example of the growing rejection of the possibilities for 1.5 as an example of that, of that difficult dynamic that as in that case, as we're heading nearer to 1.5, you have got people who are saying, well, it's, it's dead now. Now, the scientists say it's still physically possible, but what's missing is the political will. I would slightly change that language and say saying 1.5 is dead is basically passing your own judgment on the possibilities for the vast transformations that we need. And it's fair enough, I think, if some people have said it's, it, it seems to me that those transformations are possible, if not just because of understandable cynicism at the state of politics and so on. Um, but in a world in which we say ditch 1.5 and don't have an alternative story that motivates that transformation, the kind of transformation that could still give us a chance at 1.5, then you're in trouble. Because then you're in a world in which we're not motivated to deliver massive change to our societies, more instability comes, which could further demotivate and so on. So we wanted to do the report to kind of use the debate over 1.5 as a case study to highlight that wider dynamic. And it is part of a wider project called Cohort 2040, which is looking at how we can support younger generations, mainly those in the millennial generation, to be to anticipate and be better able to navigate a rapid, equitable transformation of societies through the unstable conditions that we're already seeing and will increasingly see in the future, to make sure that that generation as it passes into lead, senior leadership in the coming years and decades, can break that doom loop and instead have a virtuous circle where moments of instability are galvanizing, where they are moments to drive more rapid and positive change. That seems like a good place to wrap up. We've been speaking with UK researcher, author and strategist Laurie Leyburn. Find his new report, 1.5 Degrees C, Dead or Alive, at www.ippr.org. I will put links up in my discussion on the show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Laurie, it was great to talk with you. Thank you. Alex, it's been my pleasure. Thank you.
For Radio EcoShock, I'm Alex Smith. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Scientists and weather forecasters are worried about the next big El Nino. That is when Earth jumps up in heating, like in the 1997-98 heat and 2012, the record years. Did you know they also predict more El Ninos than we have seen, and stronger extremes? That will play out in heat waves, wildfires, droughts, and big storms. But there's another hidden place of impacts, Antarctica. From those massive polar glaciers to giant ice shelves breaking off, expect more sea level rise sooner than they told you. Naturally, the neighbors are looking into it. Our guest is Dr. Ariane Purik, and she's in the thick of Australian research about the Southern Ocean and Antarctica at Monash University in Melbourne. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment. She is also part of the Australian Research Council's special initiative called Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future. Ariane is co-author of a new paper finding El Nino events could change Antarctic sea ice and speed sea level rise around the world. From Melbourne, Ariane Purick, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Alex, thanks very much for having me today. Most media is in the Northern Hemisphere, as you know. Most humans live there. Hardly anyone spends time on the rough seas of the Southern Ocean. So we don't hear a lot about it. And yet, some scientists think the Southern Ocean is a huge factor in the future world climate. What do you think? The Southern Ocean does play a really important role in climate, and it has a really important role for a number of different reasons. So the Southern Ocean is a relatively small ocean. It's not as big as the Pacific Ocean, for example, which you might be more familiar with, but it's unique in the global oceans because it's sort of uninterrupted by continents. So it goes, you know, from south of Australia and it flows around south of South America and around south of Africa. So it, it flows all around Antarctica. And the circumpolar nature of the ocean um, means it has certain circulation characteristics. And the Southern Ocean actually takes up a huge amount of heat and carbon from the atmosphere. And so this means that it's sort of moderating global warming by taking up heat and carbon from the atmosphere into the ocean. So that's one of the reasons why the Southern Ocean is really important. Um, another reason is that Antarctica has a huge amount of ice frozen up on the continent. Over the Antarctic continent, there's about four kilometres of ice. And if this ice was to melt, it could raise global sea levels by tens of metres over sort of many centuries. Now, we're not expecting to see that sort of level of sea level rise over the 21st century, but we do expect to see some sea level rise. And this is where the Southern Ocean comes into play because the Southern Ocean surrounds the Antarctic margins and the temperature of this ocean interacts with the Antarctic ice shelves um, and can accelerate their melting and it can increase the sea level rise. And so that's another reason why the Southern Ocean is really important in influencing sea levels and these effects will be felt all around the globe. So they aren't limited to the Southern Hemisphere. The sea level rise will affect coastal communities globally. Why don't we bite into your work with the Antarctic sea ice? It is in the news. CNN reports, quote, 90% of ice around Antarctica has disappeared in less than a decade. Now, they mean the ice in the sea, of course. And what is the current state of sea ice there? Something that's very topical at the moment. It's been in the news quite a lot uh, here in Australia. So Antarctic sea ice, as you say, it's different from the ice on the land, the frozen ocean water, but it is also important because it plays a role in various components of the climate system as well. Surprisingly, for, for many decades, Antarctic sea ice was actually increasing, while in the Arctic, the sea ice has been decreasing for many decades, and that's quite well known. We see these iconic uh, global warming pictures of the polar bear, um, and there's no sea ice, so the polar bear can't get any food. In the Southern Ocean, it's been quite different. So Antarctic sea ice was increasing for many decades, and then in 2016, a huge decline occurred. Basically, over the, the course of sort of two years, the, the amount of sea ice that had been lost in the Arctic over many decades was lost 
in the Antarctic. And then since 2016, Antarctic sea ice has remained low. And so at the summer minimum in sea ice coverage, we saw a record minimum last summer in 2022. And then in February this year, 2023, we've just seen another record minimum in Antarctic sea ice coverage. And this is quite concerning to, um, to us as climate scientists seeing this really low sea ice, it can have implications to ice shelf stability. For the sea ice, when it's there, it can sort of dampen waves and protect the ice shelves from storm. And when it's not there, like, like it isn't at the moment, uh, these ice shelves are more vulnerable to waves and storms breaking them up and carving icebergs. Um, and the sea ice is also important in, in driving the deep ocean circulation. Uh, and this is an important component of how the Southern Ocean uptakes heat and carbon, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and so the fact that this sea ice is, is much lower than it previously has been uh, is something that's really alarming to a lot of climate scientists. Well, in another aspect that we've been following here on the show, it's also a factor in the Earth energy imbalance because when you lose vast amounts of sea ice, you lose the amount of sunlight that would have been reflected back into space. Scientists call it the albedo effect. Has anyone calculated the amount of new energy being added to the Earth's system due to drastically lower sea ice in Antarctica? I'm not quite sure about the energy balance of the surface per se, but you're absolutely right that the sea ice is highly reflective, and so when it's there, it reflects incoming solar radiation back out to space, and when it's not there, solar radiation is absorbed by the ocean. I'm not sure about the actual calculation, but it is another important component. Well, it's possible that calculation or study hasn't been done yet, and it will be interesting to see if it does happen. We know that melting sea ice does not add to sea level rise. That water was already there in the sea, and then it froze. Yet your work points to serious indirect connections between disappearing sea ice and sea level rise. Could you talk about that? There's three types of ice around Antarctica, as we've been discussing. The sea ice, which is frozen ocean water, and it freezes and melts each season. And this doesn't raise sea levels. It's like if you have your glass uh, with ice cubes in it, it you know, the ice cubes can melt and your, your glass doesn't overflow. But the other two types of ice, ice that's formed on land uh, when, when snowfall over Antarctica is compressed. And so we have the, the ice that's still sitting on the land called the ice sheet and then some of the ice sheet that has sort of slipped out over the ocean and is now floating over the ocean whilst still attached to the land as well, which is called the ice shelf. And the ice shelves also don't raise sea level themselves when they're not because, again, they're, they're already floating on the ocean. But as the ice shelves melt, and they melt uh, when they come into contact with warm ocean below them and also when, when icebergs carve off them, as the ice shelves melt, they allow the land ice to slide into the ocean more quickly. The ice shelves form a buttressing support, a physical barrier to, to hold the land ice on the land. And when they're not there the land ice flies into the ocean more quickly. And this is what raises sea levels. And so specifically in terms of, in terms of sea ice, when sea ice isn't present, it can increase the, the waves and the storms beating on the ice shelves, and this can increase how quickly the ice shelves break away, and thus this can increase the land ice sliding into the ocean and raising sea levels. Another really important way in which the ice shelves melt faster uh, is through uh, a warming ocean underneath the, the ice shelves. And you know, it's, it's a complicated system considering the circulation of the ocean in these very high latitude regions. But how the sea ice interacts with the ocean circulation and influences how much warm water gets beneath the shelves is another important thing to consider. There's sort of not one clear way that it influences the melting, but you know, changes occurring in the high latitude system all need to be considered. We have science showing that the state of sea ice in the Arctic can affect weather, including rainfall, further south. Is that the case for Antarctica? Does sea ice decline affect weather, say, in Australia, New Zealand, or South America? Oh, that's a really good question, Alex. I think there's a lot less known about the influence of Antarctic sea ice coverage on southern hemisphere weather patterns compared to the Arctic. There have been some studies that have shown that quite sort of substantial changes in the sea ice over the Southern Ocean can change uh, one of the modes of climate variability called the Southern Annular Mode, or the SAM, which describes the circumpolar westerly winds that blow over the Southern Ocean, and they can move north or south as, as a sort of mode of variability. So some studies have suggested that sort of 
overall sea ice coverage can affect the SAM and, and the SAM itself can affect rainfall and temperature across the, the southern hemisphere inhabited continents, so Australia and South America and Africa. But I haven't really seen this play out sort of in a more weather type context. These are sort of more longer term climate studies. Antarctica can have an important influence on the weather in, in Australia, for example, but I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the role of sea ice in influencing weather in the sort of regions north of Antarctica. Recently, you were part of a team of scientists trying to understand the future of sea ice and ice shelves around Antarctica. Your team looked at another driver, the ocean heat system known as El Nino or La Nina, technically called ENSO. The paper, published February 20th, 2023, is titled Antarctic Shelf Ocean Warming and Sea Ice Melt Affected by Projected El Nino Changes. Now, before we get to the results from your group's latest study, there is something strange. In the northern hemisphere, the deeper you go, the colder it gets, but not in the southern ocean? Uh, yeah, that, that is a really interesting thing, Alex. So, there's sort of much of the southern ocean, the northern part, the ocean, you know, just to the south of Australia. It is, as you described, in the northern hemisphere. Warm waters at the surface and then cooler waters as you, as you go deeper down in the ocean. But at the high latitudes, so around the Antarctic margins, we have the opposite. We actually have colder water at the surface and warmer water at depth. And this might seem a little bit confusing because, you know, like air, we know that warm air rises. We can expect that warm water should also rise to the top. It should be less dense and it should be sitting on the top of the ocean. But in the Southern Ocean, we have these competing influences of the temperature of the ocean and the salinity of the ocean. And we actually find them in that high latitudes of an ocean, that it's the salinity that really controls how the ocean is stratified. And so we have this cold and fresher water at the surface of the Southern Ocean and this warmer water at depth. And this is important for a couple of reasons. It means that if more or less warm water from the subsurface is upwell to the surface, it can actually cause a surface warming. And so this could be sort of surprising. You think, oh, more water coming from the depth, you would initially think that it would be colder, but it's not warmer, so it can cause a surface warming. And it's also important because ice shelves, the big bits of ice that were on land but are now floating on the ocean, they can actually be quite thick. And so the, the ice shelves, the base of the ice shelves where they come into to, um, contact with the ocean can be, for example, 400 metres below the surface. And they're in contact with the sort of warmer subsurface layer, not the cold surface layer. Um, and so this temperature of this layer can be um, important in, in melting the ice shelves and changes in that can be really sort of what sort of determines an increase uh, in the rate of melting of the ice shelves. What is the science behind predictions that we will have more hot El Nino events in the future? El Nino uh, and La Nina, which are collectively termed the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, have a huge role on global climate. It's the the largest mode of climate variability and it affects climate in all regions of the world in different ways. And climate models project that as the mean climate warms due to increasing emissions of greenhouse gases, there will be an increase in ENSO variability. And so what this means is that there will be more extreme El Niños and there will be more extreme La Niñas in the future as the climate warms. Um, and this happens because as we have a warming atmosphere, because we're increasing the concentration of greenhouse gases, it warms the surface layer of the equatorial Pacific Ocean. Uh, and this surface layer is, is warmed more quickly than below. We're back in the equator where the surface layer is the warmest layer of the ocean and, and below that is a cooler layer of the ocean. Um, and so we have a warmer surface layer and also under a warming climate we have more rainfall and, and this freshens the surface layer. And this what this does is it increases the stratification of the equatorial Pacific Ocean. And so it means that the, the surface layer of the ocean is not sort of connecting with the subsurface layer of the ocean as much as it, as it does under sort of current conditions or historical climate conditions. And what's really remarkable about ENSO is that it's a, it's a really coupled phenomena. So it involves the atmosphere and the ocean really coupling together. Um, and when we have this more strongly stratified equatorial Pacific Ocean because of global warming, it actually increases the ability of this surface layer of the ocean to couple with the atmosphere. And this means that sort of this coupling gets stronger 
and for for given wind forcing, the ocean can respond uh, in a more in a in stronger manner, um, and this essentially increases the occurrence of strong El Nino events and strong La Nina events. So under global warming, we have an increase in in inter variability in both El Nino and La Nina events. Starting in 2014, Dr. Wenju Chai of the government science agency CISRO first published his findings of increasing frequency of extreme El Nino events due to greenhouse warming. And simply put, Dr. Chai is, is a powerhouse researcher in this field. He's been publishing for the past 25 years. He led this recent study. How did you get involved, Ariane? Yeah, that's a good question, Alex. So I, I work with Chai at CSRO for a couple of years, and I also did my PhD sitting at CSRO with Chai as my supervisor there and also a university supervisor. And you're right, Chai is um, he's a world expert at, at understanding projected changes in El Nino and La Nina. And much of his work utilises coupled climate model output. And this, this coupled climate model output is something that I also use a lot in my research, which largely focuses on the southern ocean. Because of this recent study looking at you know, the influence of El Nino and La Nina on the Southern Ocean. Chai got in touch with me about getting involved in this study and sort of really looking at the influence around the Antarctic margins of these changes in the tropical Pacific. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. El Nino is the most extreme state of the Pacific cycle called ENSO. If the number of El Nino years doubles as we heat the planet, what impact does that have on Australia, which has already been slammed with years of extreme weather? I know this isn't your specialty, but you must have heard something about this. You're right in that this is my area of expertise, but uh, El Ninos and La Ninas have a strong influence on Australian rainfall, and typically across eastern Australia, which is where uh, much of the population and the agriculture in Australia is. Uh, El Ninos tend to be associated with lower rainfall and drought, and La Niñas tend to be associated with higher rainfall, uh, and in the case of the past three years, we've had quite a lot of flooding here. Um, and so while this is beyond my area of expertise, we could suggest that if we have an increased frequency in extreme El Niño and La Niña events, we might be ex- uh, experiencing stronger extreme rainfall and drought years across eastern Australia. Yes, from what I've seen, you could be going from flood to fire and back again in different years. Could you describe the processes where an El Nino taking place far away in the Pacific could hasten ice shelf melt? Yeah, okay. That's a good question because it can seem quite complicated. There's sort of actually two different mechanisms by which this can happen. And I'll explain both of them because one of them sort of seems a little bit more tangible. And so when we have an El Nino event, so we have a really warm eastern equatorial Pacific. This changes sort of the atmospheric convection and this sets off planet-wide waves in the atmosphere and it can affect climate in a lot of different regions. And so what I'm most familiar with is rainfall across eastern Australia, for example. But it also sort of sets off this wave that, uh, that influences the circulation in, in the southern Pacific Ocean near Antarctica in a region called the Amazon Sea. And so El Nino tends to be associated with a weakened Amazon Sea low circulation and conversely La Nina tends to be associated with a strengthened Amazon Sea low circulation. So this can really affect the winds sort of in this, this sector of Antarctica. But more broadly than just that, El Nino can actually affect the hemispheric circulation around the southern hemisphere. Um, and so El Nino tends to be associated with, I mentioned before, the southern annular mode or, or the SAM, El Nino tends to be associated with a negative SAM or SAM-like wind patterns, and so the westerly winds over the Southern Ocean tend to weaken and shift north, whereas La Nina tends to be associated with a positive SAM-like wind changes um, over the Southern Ocean. The winds strengthen and shift south. Um, and these changes in winds that occur both you know, on a hemispheric level and also more regionally in, in the Pacific sector in the Amazon um, sea low area these wind changes affect the underlying ocean. So a lot of the, the ocean circulation is driven by wind. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the Southern Ocean has this cool water at the surface and this warm water at depth. And changes in the wind can change the ocean circulation, which basically can redistribute the ocean heat. And so um, in, this, in this study led by Chai, uh, what they found was that because we are projecting an increase in 
and so variability from the 21st century. So there'll be more frequent strong El Nino events and more frequent strong La Nina events. But because El Nino and La Nina are not exactly symmetric, we actually get left with a residual El Nino signature in the mean circulation. So we have an El Nino-like pattern. And this changes the ocean circulation in such a way that the, the warm subsurface waters around Antarctica stay in the subsurface, uh, more so than normal. And what this means is it, it leads to a, a relative cooling of the, of the surface ocean. And I use the words relative here carefully because this is under greenhouse warming. We are still seeing the, the surface will be warming. We do still see Antarctic sea ice uh, being lost in these climate projections of the 21st century. But the role of these strong El Ninos is to, to s slow down the sea ice loss and slow down the surface warming relative to a case without this strong, strong El Ninos. Um, and conversely, this warm water, it's kept at depth, and so we actually see an increase in warming of the subsurface. Um, and this is really important to the ice shelves. So this warming happens at levels where the ice shelf cavities are located. And so if we have war more warm water being, being kept at depth, it means that there's more heat available to melt the ice shelves from below. And ultimately, this is important because as the ice shelves melt, their buttressing support is reduced and um, this means that the land ice can slide into the ocean more quickly and raise sea levels. Recent science also predicts the Arctic will become a stormier place, and that can damage sea ice, among other things. The Southern Ocean is already legendary. It's too stormy for almost any ship. Do you expect there will be more storms in and around Antarctica as the climate heats up? The Southern Ocean is a really stormy place, as you said, and one of the things that we have seen over the past few decades and that is projected to continue um, is a positive trend in the southern annual mode. And what this means is that the, the westerly, westerly winds that blow over the southern ocean, they, they've strengthened and they've moved forward. So they've moved further towards Antarctica. And the storms are tied to these westerly wind jets. So the storm tracks themselves have also moved further south around Antarctica. But I'm not actually sure about the number of storms. So I can't really comment on that exactly. We're often told the ocean is absorbing both heat and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and the churning southern ocean is the largest carbon sink mechanism perhaps on the planet. If sea surface temperatures warm as predicted and El Ninos proliferate, could this change the carbon dioxide exchange, and if so, for better or for worse? Do we know yet? It's a big question, Alex, and there's, there's lots of different components. So I think understanding the ocean's role in carbon uptake is not my area of expertise. So I'm going to add, so give some general comments, but, but they're cautioned with, with that. So part of the ocean's role in, or the southern ocean's role in uptaking heat and carbon is, is tied to its sort of mean state circulation. And this, this is likely to change under future climate because the wind can change this ocean circulation. And so changed winds could cause the ocean to uptake more or less anthropogenic heat and carbon and what this means for us we live on the land and, and in the atmosphere essentially if the ocean is taking up less heat and carbon there will be more in the atmosphere it will warm faster if the ocean takes up more heat and carbon it will sort of dampen the influence of global warming per se but it will lead to uh, faster sea level rise as the ocean sort of warms up and expands which is another sea level rise process in addition to the melting ice sheet and it will lead to faster ocean acidification. As to what exactly happens, I, I can't really comment on that clearly today, sorry. Melting ice from Antarctica could flood world port cities and heavily populated farming deltas, but most of our science and media attention has been on the Arctic, even though Antarctica could flood these places. Why do you think that is, and are we missing one of the most dangerous developing changes? There's a couple of reasons. I think the first reason is that Antarctica is really far away. It's really far away to us in Australia. It's especially far away to you in Canada, whereas the Arctic is on your doorstep. And so I think it's quite natural in that sense to be focused on something that's happening closer to you. I did my master's at McGill in Montreal, um, and when I was there, Antarctica seemed and, and like it was the furthest place in the world. And it's hard to keep that at the forefront of your mind a lot of the time. So that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is that these changes 
that have occurred in the Arctic have been have been going on for many decades now, and so they're quite well understood. And we've been seeing sea ice decline across the Arctic, for example, uh, and scientists have a pretty good understanding of that. And I think this has infiltrated the public's understanding of the science. Whereas changes in the Antarctic have been have been different. We talked previously about the sea ice uh, that it increased for about three decades before declining, and changes on the Antarctic continent have also seen sort of uh, differences. So there were some cooling trends on the Antarctic continent for a couple of decades, which have now been understood to be uh, influenced by tropical Pacific variability. Uh, like El Nino and La Nina, the tropical Pacific also uh, exhibits longer-term variability, known as the interdecadal Pacific Oscillation, um, and, and that was shown to be influencing temperature on the Antarctic continent. But so... You know, for a couple of decades, the Antarctic continent looked like it was slightly cooling, um, and it, it seemed like maybe it might be protected from some of the, um, the influences of global warming because it's so remote and because of features of the atmospheric and oceanic circulation. Uh, but now that we have more understanding, we, we can see that these, these short-term changes were more like variability, um, and there's signs that Antarctica is not as sort of removed from the influences of global warming as we once thought. Um, the East Antarctic ice sheet was once thought to be quite um, quite safe from ice shelf melting, um, and now we've got evidence to suggest that it is actually uh, starting to melt in East Antarctica too. And this is really important because there's, there's a huge amount of water stored in East Antarctica. And so, yeah, I guess these two reasons, I think, is why there's been less attention on the Antarctic. It's remote for everybody. It's particularly remote for people in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and we haven't had as clear trends as in the Arctic, there's been large variability in the Antarctic climate system as well. And so we haven't sort of necessarily seen global warming emerging as a driver of climate changes there for as long as the Arctic. Is there anything else you would like to leave with our listeners as we wrap up here? What we've discussed today is really highlighted that the Southern Ocean and Antarctica can play a huge role in driving global climate and in driving global sea levels. And so the, the take-home point overall is that it's really important that we consider changes that are occurring in Antarctica because while they are remote, they can have a strong influence on the globe. And specifically when considering this, this study led by Chai, you know, we're seeing how changes occurring or, and projected to occur in the tropical Pacific can influence the Antarctic ice shelves and the Antarctic ice, uh, sea ice. And what this is really telling us is that the global climate system is really complicated and when we're considering Antarctic climate, we have to consider changes from the tropical Pacific as well as local changes to really understand them. And I guess what happens in Antarctica will affect all of us, particularly through its role in sea level rise. Uh, and so it's important that, that we, we continue to focus research in this area. From Monash University and Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future, we've been speaking with postdoc researcher Arianne Purik. Find links to all the science we talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org, published every Wednesday. Ariane, thank you for your work and talking with us on Radio Ecoshock. Yep, thanks very much, Alex. Let your mind stretch around the planet. Become a global citizen, not just in humanity, but within the miracle web of life. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Nature calls out from her wounded places. Humans walk about from our walled spaces. In dancing bodies, sparks jump from mind to mind. Hearts open just enough to hear that gathering storm of change. Hearts open to welcome news and prepare for the strange. Serious people gather to talk about air. Antennae sense the waves. Weather wears farmers down. Debt is the new currency. Worry the new anthem. But nature calls out. I was always here. Return to this womb that never dies. Dine in my temple. Find your core. But you can never return to the way that was. You can never return.
as temples of power slip beneath the rising sea. You can never return to the way that was. You can never return to the place that was. 